Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in British Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jess Clark, and I'm one of the channel co-hosts. Today, I'm excited to speak with Dr. Sally Holloway, the Vice Chancellor's Research Fellow in History and History of Art at Oxford Brookes University. Her new book, The Game of Love in Georgian England, Courtship, Emotions, and Material Culture, was published in 2019 by Oxford University Press as part of the Emotions in History series. In her book, Holloway uses innovative methods to explore the history of romantic love in the long 18th century. Examining 60 courtships from across England, she argues that romantic love was an essential part of the 18th century life cycle. In doing so, Holloway foregrounds the language of love, love letters, material objects like gifts and love tokens, and breach of promise cases to offer new insights into this important stage in Georgian women's and men's lives. As she reveals, experiences of love, courtship, betrothal, and romantic breakdown were central elements of the 18th century emotional landscape across a range of classes and locations. Sally, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So why don't we begin by you telling us a bit about yourself? Uh, how did you come to write The Game of Love in Georgian England? And what led you to focus on romantic love in the 18th century? Uh, so, I mean, I grew up in Bedfordshire. Uh, I spent uh, a lot of time with my family visiting uh, historic houses. Uh, I spent a hell of a lot of time uh, going in and out of National Trust houses. Uh, so, I mean, from that, I always, always wanted to be a historian. Um, and so then I went to the University of Sheffield to study for an undergraduate degree in history. And that's when I first became interested in 18th century history, when I was um, studying with Karen Harvey. Uh, And then it was from there I moved down to London to do an MA in modern history at King's College London uh, and eventually a PhD in history at Royal Holloway. Um, And so it was while I was doing my MA uh, that I first really became interested in the history of love and love letters. Uh, So I took a module with Amanda Vickery on 18th century women. Uh, And for one of our assignments, she sent us out into the archives and we had to go to the archives and pick any source on 18th century social and cultural history and then write an essay on it, uh, kind of situating it historically and historiographically. Uh, And so I went to the Bedfordshire archives, which is my local archive, uh, and I found this amazing collection of love letters uh, that were written partly in French, partly in code, uh, on this uh, gilded paper. Uh, And so I cracked the code Um, And then that kind of later became my first article on the language of illicit love. Um, And so from there, I then moved to do a PhD uh, with Amanda Vickery at Royal Holloway uh, on uh, kind of love in words and objects in the 18th century. Um, And so that was around the time that you had the enormous proliferation of emotions history as a field. So the Centre for the History of the Emotions at Queen Mary University of London was founded in 2008, and I started my PhD in 2009. So it was kind of a big 
kind of growth moment um, in the field. Uh, and so I very quickly realized that by using the history of emotions, this could provide a really exciting new lens for me uh, through which to study uh, kind of the history of love, the history of marriage and the history of courtship and um, kind of enable me to ask new questions. So, I mean, a lot of previous work on the history of marriage asked things like, um, you know, why did people get married? What were people's motivations for matrimony? You know, was it for love? Was it for status? Was it for individual choice? Was it the interests of kin? Uh, But then by using emotions history, I realized I could kind of look at the subject through this new lens. Uh, So instead thinking about how did couples conceptualize and convey their emotions uh, in words and objects. Um, And so that was the subject of my thesis uh, and later the subject of uh, the game of love in Georgian England. Excellent. Well, why don't we turn to the book now, um, in which you've mobilized a broad interdisciplinary approach to yield so many incredibly rich findings about these experiences of love and courtship. Um, I want to come back to this interdisciplinarity a little bit later on. But to begin, I thought we'd talk about the language of romantic love being mobilized through the 18th century. What were some of the influences shaping romantic scripts or stories about love in this moment? And how are these subsequently disseminated in the form of love letters? So the first chapter of the book argues that uh, courting couples followed a distinct kind of script for love. Uh, And so that is how kind of men and women knew that they were definitely engaging in courtship uh, as lovers rather than just as friends. Uh, And so sometimes you can even see the moment, you know, in a man's letter that he takes it up a gear, you know, from writing as a friend to writing as a lover. Uh, And so by using this kind of shared language or script for uh, negotiating love, uh, couples could make sure that they were definitely, you know, on the same page, so to speak, because they were both using the same script. Um, And so in the chapter, I divide the language of love into three constituent parts looking at uh, religious love, physical love, and literary love. Um, And so, for example, talking about religious love, uh, I found the Bible was extremely important in shaping individual conceptions of love. Um, And so many, especially devout couples, would kind of obliquely lift these uh, prayers and thanksgivings from the Bible and from the Common Prayer Book uh, and quote them in their love letters uh, without necessarily saying they were doing so. Uh, while others equally would use their letters to debate uh, theological ideas like, uh, you know, were humans naturally virtuous or were humans naturally sinful? Uh, And that provided a really important way uh, for more devout couples to kind of gauge their compatibility before marriage, to kind of weigh up their arguments against one another, to see how they got on and to see how their values aligned. Um, And then equally, uh, in that chapter, I look at how um, different religious denominations shaped their relationships in different ways, using these different languages of religious love. Um, So, for example, I found that Quaker couples conceptualize marriage and love in a very different way in terms of uh, they describe marriage as um, a union of spirits or a union of minds. Uh, and so it was very much kind of more kind of about the soul and it didn't have the same emphasis on the body that you very often had um, in couples from other religious backgrounds. 
Um, and so secondly, the chapter looks at physical symptoms of love. And so it was equally important to kind of set out the various physical symptoms you were experiencing in writing. Uh, so it wasn't enough to simply experience these things. You had to get them down on the page as kind of written evidence of the strength of your attachment in order to kind of help push your relationship forwards. Um, and so couples described physical symptoms of love in their letters, like uh, blushing, sighing, trembling, uh, crying, fainting, sleeplessness, uh, dreaming of a loved one, which all provided uh, a way for them to kind of conceptualize and convey their devotion. Um, and so the kind of discourses that couples were drawing upon also then changed over the century. Uh, so you've got the growing prominence of the nerves, for example, and nervous maladies and the experience of love uh, with the growth of the culture of sensibility. And you also have new discourses entering this language. For example, people increasingly talked over the 18th century about the electricity between them and somebody else uh, or the chemistry that, that was bringing them together. So you can see uh, how the language of love is very much socially and culturally and historically contingent. Uh, you know, it's not, it's not a timeless language that can be employed by anyone at any moment in the same way. Uh, and then finally, the chapter explores uh, how couples invoked uh, particular literary figures uh, as a way to chart the changing status of their relationship. Uh, and so the kinds of couples that uh, suitors were talking about in the 18th century are people like Adam and Eve, uh, Romeo and Juliet, Troilus and Cressida, Abelard and Heloise. Um, and so these provided a kind of an important shared reference point uh, for people to kind of pin their experiences on. Um, and so writers often quoted entire passages from books without explicitly naming the source that they were quoted from. Uh, so they were kind of secure in the knowledge that the recipient would, would share that knowledge with them. They would know kind of which book they were quoting uh, and understand its meaning. Um, and so what I argue is that the reason this script was so important uh, was because it helped couples to elucidate their feelings. It helped them to chart how their relationship was going. Uh, and it really helped them to build that closer emotional bond uh, in pursuit of matrimony. Um, and then in the following chapter on love letters, uh, I then continue this theme of looking at love in words uh, to consider how men and women use their letters in particular gendered ways in order to move a relationship forwards. Um, so, for example, men uh, were kind of constructed in wider culture as uh, they were kind of the people in pursuit of courtship. So courtship was constructed as a kind of a sport or a hunt. And so because of that, uh, men would always emphasize their sincerity and their honesty and their openness in love letters uh, to kind of reassure the women that they were writing to, that they had honorable intentions. Uh, whereas women's letters uh, were generally much more reserved and guarded about their emotions, you know, emphasizing their, their modesty and their desire to improve before marriage. Uh, but, I mean, that doesn't mean, just because women were more reserved, it doesn't mean they didn't have any power in the process. Uh, so, for example, women, women used the tools they had at their disposal uh, as a source of leverage. So I looked at one woman, for example, called Charlotte Mary Kerwin, who was a Baptist minister's daughter. Um, and she said that if this guy she was courting, Francis Cobb, if he didn't let her educate his children in the way that she saw fit, according to her religious views, she couldn't see their courtship progressing any further. So, I mean, uh, couples use their letters in these particular gendered ways 
in order to progress a courtship in the direction that they wanted. The book then moves on uh, from written forms to address the relationship between expressions and love uh, and material objects, uh, and specifically tokens exchanged uh, from around 1714 to 1830. Can you tell us a little bit more about these items, the ways that recipients interacted with them, and the different functions that they served? Certainly. So, I mean, the kinds of objects I'm studying are items like uh, gloves, garters, rings, locks of hair, portrait miniatures, bunches of flowers. Uh, So, I mean, broadly speaking, they're kind of small items that you could carry around. You could take them around with you in your pockets. You could put them under your pillow while you're asleep at night. You could hold them in the palm of your hand. Um, And so within these objects, there was kind of a a hierarchy of gifts in terms of which were the most socially and emotionally significant. Um, So you had objects like flowers at the bottom because they were quite inexpensive. So you could pick flowers for free. Um, And also friends, you know, commonly exchange flowers as a gift. Whereas at the very top of the hierarchy of gifts uh, were these important uh, objects like locks of hair and a ring that signified that you would soon be married. Uh, And they're the items, the most important ones, that if you then broke up, you were expected to give them back in order to formally terminate your relationship. Um, And so the chapter brings together gifts that were typically given by women. So things like pressed flowers. Women commonly gave uh, flowers like violets uh, that were sent in their letters because they were a sign of kind of true and virtuous and faithful love. Uh, And it brings these together with objects that were very commonly selected by men. So things like uh, stay busks uh, and garters and rings, for example. Uh, And it looks at objects like letters and miniature portraits Uh, that were given by both sexes. So, I mean, when I was initially writing my thesis, I organised them according to types of objects in terms of textiles uh, and items relating to the body and so on. I soon realised that actually what I think is really important here is what people were doing with these objects. So how they were using these material items to navigate and negotiate their love and their relationships in practice. Um, And so the book structures... Um, the chapter on love tokens around these key rituals of gazing at, touching, kissing, caressing and smelling love tokens, Uh, because I think these were absolutely fundamental in eliciting and intensifying feelings of love. Um, So, for example, you know, writers very, very commonly described uh, touching a lock of hair for inspiration while uh, composing their letters uh, or composing poems while they were gazing at a portrait miniature. Uh, And so some of these items did have a historic association with courtship. So something like a glove, uh, you know, had a very long association as a kind of love gift. Whereas others, things like buttons, didn't necessarily Uh, but they were still very commonly given as romantic gifts because the key thing, I think, uh, is what you did with these objects, uh, kind of using the body, using the senses, what you did with them in order to move a relationship forward. And I think the way that you've organized that chapter, as you described, around the experiences uh, with the objects really brings that to the fore. I think that makes it, uh, really vivifies it for the reader. Um, Your book explores not only the emotional and material experiences of courtship, but also the emergence of what you term a new marketplace of love. Can you describe some of the computer 
excuse me, consumer developments that came out of this commodification of romantic love in this time? And what kind of effects did this have on existing customs? Sure. So uh, over the course of the Georgian era, I think there was an enormous kind of growing number and variety and range of consumer goods that could be exchanged by lovers. Um, and so there's uh, these items like snuff boxes, like perfume bottles, like printed watch papers, uh, like seals, things like books. So couples very often sent uh, their favorite books with um, kind of key passages underlined saying things like, uh, this is my favorite bit, or this is the bit I most agree with. Uh, I hope that you therefore agree with me. Um, they often sent things like printed cottons that were kind of uh, luxury, kind of exotic gifts, things like muslins as well, uh, and furs. And again, so some of these, like watch papers, uh, were very cheap. You could potentially cut it out of a magazine. Uh, but others, like furs, were extremely expensive. So, so, again, there was a hierarchy in terms of which gifts uh, were the most uh, important, the most significant. Um, and so this kind of growing range of gifts, it came printed very often uh, with kind of romantic motifs. So things like snuff boxes, perfume bottles, watch papers, they came with a kind of stock selection of images on them, which, again... Uh, is how you knew they were definitely intended as romantic gifts. Um, and things like seals as well. So people use specific seals given as love tokens in order to seal their love letters. And they'd say things in their letters like, look at my seal. Uh, you know, what do you think of it? And it would say something like, I love you on the seal. So, I mean, they, you know, they're sending these messages almost through objects, uh, which is especially important for women because it wasn't so uh, common for them to be able to come out, come out and say exactly how they felt in great detail in writing on paper in the same way that men did. Um, and so, yeah, like I said, a lot of these objects were printed with these romantic motifs. Uh, so it's things like uh, cupids, cherubs, hearts, lovebirds, burning torches, uh, churches, couples looking out together towards a church, you know, under a title such as matrimony, which is quite an obvious hint if you get that as a gift, uh, and uh, kind of lovers in these kind of idyllic country settings. Um, and so also these kind of gifts were very often imprinted with romantic declarations in French, um, which had kind of an international reputation as the language of courtship and flirtation and love and romance. Um, so, I mean, couples were still exchanging older gifts, such as rings that I look at in Chapter 3. They were still exchanging rings and garters and gloves, but they were doing so as part of a much more diverse range of objects. Um, so what I believe the overarching shift uh, is towards more goods and more choice uh, for lovers as consumers. Um, and so overall, what I believe we're seeing is the emergence of a love industry. Um, and so this is kind of a new opportunity for the production, marketing and consumption of love. Um, and so you perhaps won't be surprised, therefore, to hear uh, that at the same time, you've got the emergence of Valentine's Day uh, as an explicitly commercial celebration. Um, and so Valentine's Day had been celebrated in the 17th century, uh, for example, but it was more generally through 
um, kind of communal collective rituals, such as engaging in lotteries when you pick someone's name out of a hat and give them a gift. Whereas by the 18th century, uh, there's a really important transformation in the celebration into more of the commercial event that we understand it as today. Um, and so, for example, you've got the rise of the Valentine card uh, as a new consumer object. Um, and I think that came out of the uh, emergence of printed writing papers and cards that were being sold by booksellers and by stationers' shops uh, and the increasing range of kind of marbled, coloured and gilded papers that were available. Um, so one of the people I studied in my book, he wrote to his daughter from France, uh, you know, that in France you could buy, people were writing in, in inks of every colour on paper of every colour. So there's this massive diversification uh, of the kind of paper products available. Uh, and so the rise of the printed Valentine is very much bound up with this. Um, and so the first surviving printed Valentine card that we know of uh, was produced by the bookseller John Fairburn, who had a shop on Minories in London. Uh, in 1797. So it's possible that there was one printed earlier, but this is the first one that has a date printed on the front, so we can date it with absolute certainty to the end of the 18th century. Um, and so Valentine's Day has not been subject to very much scholarship at all um, in terms of histories of 18th century love and courtship. Um, so one of the things I'm trying to do in my book is to kind of reinstate it as an 18th century celebration. I think it was, I think the, the Georgian era is the absolute pivotal period in the invention of Valentine's Day as a modern celebration. Um, and so in the last decade of the 18th century, you know, consumers could go into booksellers, into stationers, into printer shops, and they could choose between printed Valentine cards that had different images in the center, uh, that had different decorative touches to make them kind of attractive consumer objects. Uh, and they'd have, uh, for example, embossed borders around the outside uh, that had cupids and declarations of love in French around the borders. Uh, and cobwebs, uh, which is kind of a dome that was cut out of the paper uh, in a circle, and you could lift up uh, the dome using a string in the centre in order to reveal a hidden picture inside. So there's all kind of new ways in which love is being marketed to consumers um, kind of as a new commercial product. Uh, but, I mean, this is not to say this is a simple story of change, uh, because the commercialization of romantic customs then also led to a reinvigoration of older traditions. Um, and so as a response to the commercialization of love, the, the emergence of this new marketplace, um, there was also a reinvigoration of traditions dating back to the beginning of the 18th century. So couples then started sending each other uh, hand-drawn cards that they'd made themselves, you know, watercolour cards that they cut out, uh, acrostics based on a person's name, uh, and kind of poems using the language of courtly love. So they were reinvigorating these deliberately archaic traditions and using this self-consciously archaic language. So they were using the language of courtly love in these handmade Valentine cards, which was kind of uh, quaint by the end of the 18th century, because uh, it's since been uh, very much overtaken by the language of sensibility. Um, and so I decided to split the material culture chapters 
into these two separate sections. One on sensory interaction with tokens in order to kind of show how people were moving a relationship forward by how they use their objects, but also a chapter uh, on the marketplace of love in order to kind of pinpoint what was special about the 18th century, what was distinct about it, you know, what distinguished the 18th century marketplace of love uh, from what came before in the 17th century. Uh, And so hopefully that helps to uh, define the 18th century or the long 18th century as kind of a key era, a kind of a key period of change uh, in which romantic customs um, very much evolved into more of a modern form in many ways. Well, after attention to uh, romantic love, you then close out the book in a really fascinating way by subverting readers' expectations of uh, marriage and lifelong happiness to focus instead on romantic breakdowns. You do so through an exploration of language and experience and objects in, in a concluding chapter, Breach of Promise Cases. So what were some of the ways that people understood romantic hurt and failed courtships through the long 18th century? So in the book, I argue that there was a really significant emotional shift uh, that was connected to the cult of sensibility, uh, where suffering from love was redefined as a uniquely female malady from the mid 18th century. So Previously, kind of suffering because of your passion was associated with the language of courtly love, uh, with troubadours, um, kind of sighing and groaning and dying from you know the pain of their uh, the pain of their love. Uh, but with the rise of the culture of sensibility, uh, I think you have the redefinition of suffering from love uh, as something that was kind of a uniquely female thing to experience. Um, And so women were seen to suffer much more than men when their courtships came to an end uh, because of their physical frailty, because of their weakened nerves um, and because of their tender and feeling hearts. Um, And so in kind of absolute worst case scenario, uh, you know, a woman's romantic disappointment, it could lead to medical conditions like hysteria uh, and kind of slowly wasting away until death. Um, And so this wasn't just a kind of construction in wider culture Um, and so people also applied it to their relationships every day Um, and so I found quite a few examples of women who would write to their friends if they'd recently been through a breakup and try to kind of talk them through it saying you know don't sink under your passion you know like a common weak-minded woman you know you've got to rouse yourself you've got to try and overcome this because you know the expectation was that romantic disappointment was almost impossible uh, for, for a woman to overcome. Um, I mean, some of the women I've studied in their letters, they described it as being like a worm that gnawed upon your very vitals. It was something that kind of gnawed, gnawed away or wore you away until the grave. Um, and so in contrast, because of this important kind of cultural and emotional shift, uh, men were kind of widely seen as being able to stifle love much more easily than women could. Uh, And so men were urged in wider culture uh, not to dwell, not to whine about, uh, not to kind of fixate too much upon romantic disappointment uh, because that would uh, show their kind of lack of manliness, their idleness and their lack of self-control. And so conduct books talked a lot about this in terms of uh, warning men not to get fixated 
upon romantic disappointment in the same way that a woman would. And it urged them to uh, fly to, you know, employment, 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 because, you know, a man who was suffering too much from romantic disappointment, he obviously just didn't have enough to occupy himself, uh, whereas he should have. And so in a related shift, uh, the period also saw the redefinition of suicide as a masculine act of heroism, gallantry, courage and passion. Um, and so the ultimate heroic suicide um, in popular culture was the suicide of Ger- uh, Goethe's Werther. So the hero, uh, the epistolary novel, The Sorrows of Young Werther, and at the end of the novel, uh, he shot himself with two pistols uh, because of his disappointment in love. Uh, and so that then inspired a wave of copycat suicides right across Europe. So it was a new kind of new cultural trope, a new way of understanding romantic disappointment, both for men and for women. And you can see the key dichotomy here, which is that while the women uh, were kind of seen to, to waste away, to droop, to wilt and die, you know, they didn't really have any choice over the matter. Um, whereas men made this kind of gallant and heroic and courageous decision to end their lives. So these are the kind of the new gender dichotomies um, in terms of how heartbreak was understood and presented culturally. Um, and then I then explore this more in the final chapter on breach of promise. Um, so I find that uh, this emotional shift concerning who could legitimately suffer when a relationship came to an end uh, first became reflected in a legal context in breach of promise cases in the 1790s. Um, and so that, again, saw an important change in kind of how how breach of promise actions worked. And uh, so because of this new emotional, um, kind of new emotional regime, because of this emotional shift, uh, there was an, a completely new understanding of romantic suffering, both culturally and under the law. Uh, and through both of these chapters, again, uh, I've woven objects such as love letters and love tokens. So I found that as a relationship was coming to a conclusion, if you, if a man or a woman wanted to be completely sure that the person they were courting knew a relationship was definitely over, uh, they, you had to return the letters that you'd exchanged and you had to return tokens such as rings and locks of hair. Uh, otherwise, I found some men, uh, you know, discussing with their friends saying, well, you know, if she's not giving me, she's not giving me my letters back, how, you know, maybe we are still courting, you know, how do I know that it's definitely over? Um, so you had to, you had to give back these objects in order to formally terminate your relationship. Uh, and equally, if you didn't, you could then produce them as evidence in court. So I found that uh, love letters were routinely produced as evidence of um, a serious romantic relationship in the common law courts in breach of promise cases. Um, so you can see that the love letter is significant in terms of how people kind of conceptualize and convey and express their emotions. It's significant in terms of how people navigate their relationships by um, kind of through the senses, by, you know, sleeping with love letters kind of beneath their pillows at night. But they're also significant in a legal sense, because if you held on to your love letters, uh, you could then use it as evidence of a serious relationship. And it was very common uh, for these love letters to be read out in their entirety in court. 
um, and to judge the quality of the language that was used in them. Um, and sometimes if a letter wasn't suitably effusive or wasn't drawing upon this script for love that I talked about in chapter one of the book, um, it, you know, it wouldn't be admitted as evidence of, of love. So the, again, it's these important uh, kind of tropes shaping how people understood and conducted their relationships. Uh, they were important right the way through a relationship from the beginning when you were first forming it uh, right until the end in order to enable you, especially as a woman, uh, to prove that a relationship happened. So, you know, women held on to their love letters uh, because they might need to call on them as evidence later on. Throughout the book, you mobilize a range of approaches to explore the history of romantic love in this moment. This includes work in material history, as you've discussed, but also other disciplines beyond history, from anthropology to psychology. So can you tell us a little bit about how you came to these interdisciplinary methodologies and how they shaped your project? Certainly. So, I mean, the the two areas that I draw upon most heavily, uh, material culture history and emotions history, uh, are both fundamentally interdisciplinary. So, I mean, uh, you know, in many ways, it makes, you know, it's completely, uh, makes complete and absolute sense that uh, my book would therefore be uh, interdisciplinary as well. So, I mean, in interpreting objects, for example, um, I've drawn a lot on anthropological work by people uh, looking at gift exchange, like Marcel Mauss, uh, his work, The Gift, like Annette B. Wiener and her work on inalienable possessions, and by anthropologists like Daniel Miller uh, in works like The Comfort of Things, um, as well as work by art historians like Jules David Proud and his book Art as Evidence um, in terms of how, what kind of method we use to interpret objects and their meaning and what we can kind of draw from this in constructing our histories. Um, and then equally, I've drawn a lot on work in the history of emotions, uh, which comes from a real range of fields, um, like you said, you know, including you know, philosophy, psychology, uh, sociology, literary studies. Um, so I suppose some of the most important for me um, have been people like the ethnographer Monique Scheer. Um, and so she wrote this uh, incredible article on emotion as a kind of practice. Um, and I suppose that has been one of the most influential, if not the most influential um, kind of approach for my book. Um, in terms of approaching love as something that we do. You know, love is a verb following Shear's theory. Uh, it's something that we do in practice through particular languages, by writing letters, by exchanging gifts, by using these particular kind of embodied rituals. Um, and therefore, it's something that's very much historically specific. And so therefore, it's something that we can study. Um, and equally, I was quite influenced by um, the psychologist and neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett's work on emotions in the brain um, in terms of thinking about how objects inspire these emotional responses and the people that interact with them and the people that use them, um, particularly in terms, in terms of af- thinking about affect and emotion and the brain. Um, And so I hope that by drawing upon uh, these various theories, you know, in anthropology, in art history, uh, you know, ethnography, uh, you know, in psychology, I hope uh, I've been able to bring together quite a diverse range of of textual, of visual and of material sources in order to construct my arguments. So they're both textual on one level because I'm looking at 
people describing the gifts that they gave in letters. They're also material uh, in terms of, you know, using these non-textual sources um, to provide kind of a different view, a, a different perspective uh, on love and the materiality of love. Uh, and visual sources as well, obviously, such as uh, prints and paintings. Uh, and so what I hope is that overall, by drawing upon this uh, breadth of kind of sources from across different disciplines and the breadth of um, historiography, breadth of research across disciplines, um, I hope that I've managed to create a much more holistic history. Um, so it analyzes love in texts, in objects, through the body, through gestures, through the senses. And so what I'm trying to do is really to respond to Monique Scheer's call for historians of the emotions to think harder about what people are doing uh, by looking at the bodies and artifacts of the past. Uh, and so love emerges from that uh, as something that we do. Uh, and in the 18th century, uh, it was something that people did through exchanging letters and tokens, through interacting with them, you know, through the body, through the senses, uh, and using these particular scripts and rituals uh, that were shared among all people who were engaging, engaging in courtship at the time. Well, I think you've certainly succeeded on that front. As a reader, I can say um, expressions of love move off of the written page uh, in the book itself, and you can really uh, sort of uh, understand the feelings and experiences of, of many of your subjects. So congratulations on uh, on uh, such a fantastic book. So um, we are almost out of time though. So I want to thank you for joining us. And uh, before we go here at the New Books Network, we traditionally end our discussions by asking, what are you working on next? Uh, so next, my next big project is examining the history of heartbreak in Britain over the long durée. Uh, so thinking about what happened when the heart literally ruptured as a consequence of love uh, and also cultural constructions of, of broken hearts, of jilting, of disappointed and unrequited love. Um, and so you can see it's in some ways it's grown out of chapter five of my book on romantic suffering, uh, but it extends it to also incorporate medicine and embodiment and also over a much longer time period. So stretching right from the late 17th to the early 20th century. Um, and so in some ways, it's a sequel to the game of love in Georgian England. Uh, and it's looking at kind of the price of love or the cost of love uh, over the long durée. That sounds excellent. We look forward to it. Thanks again to you, Sally. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. And thanks, of course, to all of our listeners. Until next time.